How are we doing, Revolution? All right. I know that a lot of people are gone for Labor Day, but that was lame, so we're going to do it again. How are we doing, Revolution? That's better. Um, well, we are continuing to work through um, the Gospel of Mark. And so if you've got a Bible, you can grab and go to page 599. And uh, we're going uh, through Mark verse by verse. And tonight we're going to talk about the baptism of Jesus. Um, so we'll hit that tonight. Why was it that Jesus got baptized? What does that mean for us? I think it has uh, and means a lot. And so we're going to talk about that. And then, um, then while I'm doing this, just a couple things, if, if you would. Um, if you pray, you know, like why I preach or worship, throw up prayer for me. I am dead tired. And so um, this is going to be real interesting. Apparently, I wrote some things on Facebook and Twitter last night. I woke up this morning and discovered afresh. So um, just say that prayer for me. Also say a prayer for, you know, we've got some good friends, a good friend of mine and Justin and everything. Shane Runyon is, is down playing on the river right now. It kind of stinks that it kind of conflicted with our time of worship because I would love to have gone down and supported Shane. Um, but just pray that it won't rain him out. That would be really cool if he could actually play his gig. Um, so just pray for that. And with that, we'll get going. If you go to page 599 uh, or just the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and we're going to go from verse 9, we ended verse 8 last week, and we're going to go from verse 9 through verse 13 tonight, and talk about Jesus' baptism, and I've got all my stuff saved, my iPhone here, I promise I'm not texting while I'm preaching, though that would be really impressive if I could do that. Verse 9, here we go, remember last week we saw John the Baptist comes, and, and it's a really odd thing, John the Baptist coming on the scene, because John the Baptist, you know, he comes on the scene, and you know, he does not do what? He does not go to the temple, right? He goes out to the wilderness to preach, which is really odd, because if you're an Israelite, where you go to meet God, where you go to be reconciled with God, is the temple, right? So you go to the priest in their nice white robes, and you offer the sacrifice, and they pronounce you that you're clean of sin, all that kind of stuff, and you walk away with this feeling of majesty. But instead, what we saw last week, what was taking Israel by storm, was that they were going out into the wilderness, out into the middle of nowhere, to a creek. I have been there. I know it sounds Jordan River, but the place where John the Baptist was baptizing was basically like a backwater creek. And so he was there, and we saw how weird John was, that John smelled. He's got bug innards hanging off his teeth, and he's there baptizing people. And for some reason, people are just flocking to go and see him. And I thought the reason why, I didn't push this as hard last week, the reason why they're going after out there to see John the Baptist instead of to the nice, clean temple with all the aromas and all that kind of stuff, all the fragrances and everything smells nice, and everybody looks good, and the people are all really nice. And instead, they're going out in the middle of nowhere because they're desperate. They're desperate. Their religion has left them dry. Their religion has left them empty. Their religion has left them lost. Their religion has left them feeling like God is still very, very far away. 
And they heard this rumor. They've been hearing this rumor for years from priests growing up that maybe one day that a, a prophet would return, even though we'll see this gets a little dicey because the priests were out there saying, no, there'll be no more prophets. But, but they, they get desperate. They hear that this possible prophet sounds like Elijah, so they go out to hear him. And so he's baptizing. And then one day, this is what happens, why John is baptizing. Verse 9. One day Jesus came from Nazareth, Galilee, and, and Jesus came from Nazareth, Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. Now, something that has like basically um, befuddled Christians, a lot of Christians for a long, especially the last couple hundred years, is why would Jesus be baptized? Because typically the way we preach baptism, you know, in, in this area and in a lot of churches is you are baptized, why? Repent of sins, right? Well, Jesus never sinned, so why is he being baptized? He does not need to be cleansed. He is clean. In fact, as we will see in a couple weeks, he is not only clean, he brings healing and cleansing to everyone he touches with compassion. He never becomes tainted by anything he comes into contact with. So why would he have to be baptized? Okay, you've got to get a bigger picture of baptism than that. That baptism is not just what is going to happen. We talked about you know, last week that there's kind of a suspicion. There's this kind of, kind of this weird kind of, uh, of, of mythology and traditions that have popped up about baptism where it is, I will go and I will confess, I will make the little prayer, and then I will go and then I'll set it up and I'll get into a nice warm baptism, baptistry, unless you're baptized here because um, it's dirty and freezing. You earn it here. And so, you know, and, we, and they get in and you're baptized and then you're like, oh, I've, you know, my sins are gone and I come up out of the water and I'll be like, oh, and I, and I will be holy and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. I, and, and, but that is not how it happens. And then a lot of people become truly disappointed because they get baptized and then they, you know, they have this great energy and rush and then like the very next day, they're struggling with the same sins they were struggling with before they got baptized. It's like, why is this happening? Because baptism is not magic. Right? We're going to talk more about this as we work through Mark. There are a lot of really silly myths around Christianity. And why none of us would ever say that it's magic, we, we tend to think that it is. If we repeat a little prayer, we're in. And God can't do anything about it. I said the prayer. Right? And that baptistry is just somehow going to just wash all the sins away. But baptism in the first century was not just about sin. It was not just about cleansing. Baptism was also about the story of Israel, the story of God, the story of God's redemption. Now, if you dial back and you go to the Old Testament, and, and many of you here were not, you know, were not raised in a church or you, you didn't, haven't read through the Bible, that's okay. If you've never read the Old Testament, maybe you've seen the really bad cartoon, The Prince of Egypt, that's close enough. So you go, and, 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 and in that, you'll remember that you have um, Moses, right? And Moses is called by God to go and confront Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. The Israelites, the people of God, are being held in slavery by the Egyptians, and then after God goes really medieval on the Egyptians, the Egyptians finally relent, let them go. God ends up drowning the army after he changes his mind. I mean, it's, 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 it, it makes the Godfather look like Patch Adams. It really, really does. And so then 
the Israelites come out, and, and here's how the rabbis begin to talk about the early story of Israel. When Israel is fleeing from the Egyptian army, God parts the waters. Remember that from the cartoon or from growing up or whatever, right? God parts the waters. Israel goes through. Egypt tries to go through. They get drowned. The rabbis begin to talk about going through the water and coming out as a type of national baptism, as a kind of commissioning as God's people. What we're going to see Jesus do again and again is live out the story of Israel. Except if you do know the Old Testament or you remember anything that, or, or, or you know, here's, if you just know the Prince of Egypt, it goes bad after the credits roll, okay? The Israelites do not do a good job. They blow it. They are supposed to be this nation, alternative nation, a nation like no other nation. They're supposed to be a nation, and the reason God picks the nation of Israel, where that geography where he puts them is because that's where everybody east and west would have to go through to travel through, and they would travel through, and they would encounter these people who took care of the poor. In fact, they took care of the poor so well, they, they, they admired the poor, so they wanted to make sure that the poor were never humiliated, that farmers were instructed that when they went out to harvest, anything that fell on the ground, they were not to pick it up. They were to leave it there so that the poor could come along and after they were done, and over the cover of darkness or whatever, just come and pick up food and take it without having to beg. They were commanded that you will be just. They were commanded that if you see anyone in need, you will care for them. And the whole point was to come, in, come in, in contact with this alternative nation so that they said, who, what, why do you do this? Why do you care for the poor? Why do you care for the widow? Why do you care about justice? And they would say, we worship the one true God and you can worship Him too. Right? That's the whole point of Israel existing. That's the story of Israel. And when Jesus comes along, what He's going to do is He's going to live out the story of Israel except He's going to live it out correctly. He's going to do it right. So his baptism is this story, telling this story again. And as we're going to see as we work through Mark, this is a story almost like written into our DNA. Give you a preview. How many of you have ever seen the movie? And if you've ever even flipped through TNT or TBS, you have seen it, The Shawshank Redemption. Right? You've seen the movie, The Shawshank Redemption? Have you ever thought about this, that, that narrative arc? A guy who is innocent, right? Wrongly imprisoned, badly treated, but never retaliates, escapes. They even say he went through what to get out? Hell to get out. And he gets out. And message comes back to the people who followed him. He's in paradise waiting for them. And they tell stories about him in preparation for that day. Where did they get that story from? Right? This is a story we'll see again and again. You see it in Lord of the Rings. You see it in Star Wars. You see it again and again. You see this story. This story is the story that Jesus is living out. And that is one of the many reasons that he goes to be baptized. Verse 10, As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart, and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Stop there for a second. Again, Jews believed that 
the opening of the heavens to where heaven and earth is connected was a sign of the beginning of the end of the sinful world, the end of the sinful world and the beginning of a renewed creation. And so the heavens open up and the Spirit comes on Jesus like a dove. Why a dove? The Spirit hovering like a dove, first of all, conjures up images of creation, Genesis, right? That's if you go look at Genesis 1, at creation, that's what's going on with the Spirit. It's hovering there like a bird over the new creation. But there's more to that. The dove was also the national symbol of Israel and the dove was, if you were a poor person, and it's largely the poor that respond to Jesus, if you were poor and you went to the temple and you said, I have to offer a sin sacrifice, you would offer, guess what? Come on. Very good. Yes, you're paying attention. Yeah. A dove. Is it any wonder that Jesus, the symbol that, that comes upon Jesus is that of a sacrifice? Right? Verse 11, and a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Now, again, many, many rabbis and teachers taught that God no longer spoke through prophets. He only spoke directly from heaven. And they, of course, condemned John the Baptist. They wanted to know why John the Baptist was doing what he wanted to do. They were saying that John the Baptist had no right to do what he do, and then all of a sudden a voice from heaven speaks. <laughs> John felt really good at that moment. And so the voice speaks, and the voice that what he pronounces is a combination of two Bible verses. It's a combination of two Bible verses. One is from the Psalms. It's a kingship psalm. Now, every four years... I'm probably the only geek who watches this in this room, but every four years, we elect a president, and we swear a president in, and there's all kinds of pomp and circumstance. They play hell to the chief, right? We do all this. He's got to take the oath with the chief justice. You know, four years ago, the chief justice screwed it up. It was really funny. You know, you, you, those things happen every four years. Well, whenever Israel would elect a new king, whenever their new king would come to the throne, God would place there, or the people would bring there, the new king, they would sing to the new king. They would sing a psalm specifically written for the crowning of a king. And this is one of it. So what is happening here in Jesus' baptism is not only the story of Israel being worked out, but it is also the crowning of the king. Remember our theme through the Gospel of Mark is the kingship of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is not only Savior, He is also Lord. He is also king. He will be the one who rules over the world for all eternity. He is the one true king. But it's not just Psalm. The second verse is from Isaiah. It's a suffering servant passage from Isaiah, talking about how the people of God will suffer on behalf of the nations. So what kind of king is Jesus? A suffering king. In fact, the entire story from both Israel and in Jesus is that in order to heal the world, we must suffer on behalf of the world. We must suffer with the world. That was Israel's story. That is Jesus' story. And by the way, that is our story if we follow 
Jesus Christ. Verse 12, the Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness. Why the wilderness? Now, Jesus is going to be tempted, but the reason he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted is, one, he's living out the story again. Remember, after Israel, you know, goes through, has the Prince of Egypt moment, and they go through the water, which, by the way, was a river, and I know that Spielberg had a whale right there. There was no whale in that river. But anyway, so they went. Sorry to spoil it. Even though today I watched, um, for the first time ever, River Monsters. Oh my gosh, I'm never water skiing again. So anyway, um, <laughs> I'm already terrified of the ocean. Dave Dunham and I agree on that. You do not go into the ocean. You do not go into the ocean. I know you're sitting there saying, why would you not go there? Okay, look, see, here's what we do. This is an entire PR campaign. The PR campaign is you go to the beach. The beach. Well, everybody likes the beach. The beach sounds great. Yes, I'll go to the beach. But what if you described it this way? We're going to some water where lots of people often die from the undertow, and there are man-eating creatures in there, which might, if they, if they confuse you with the seal, eat you. What do you say we go? Who signs up for that? Oh, and by the way, you won't be able to see it. You can't see in the water, so it can sneak up right behind you and eat you. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll just lose a leg. Yay, let's go. No, you don't do that. You don't go in the water. If God wanted us in the water, he would have made it clear and animal free. All right? (laughs) Free advice. So, after Israel goes into the Red Sea and they come up out of the Red Sea and and this is their national baptism, they then go into the wilderness and they are tempted there and they flunk. Jesus goes into the wilderness except he overcomes the temptation. And as we will see later, because part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, part of what our king does for us is he serves as our substitute. So he is tempted on our behalf. We'll talk later about why that is so important that Jesus be tempted on our behalf and overcome that temptation. But the wilderness was also, by the way, a place superstitiously believed to be where the demons reigned. Verse 13, where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. Why 40 days? Israel, 40 years. Him, 40 days, right? And he was among the wild animals, and angels took care of him. We have a king who suffers on our behalf and is going to call us to suffer on others' behalf in order to heal a world. And what I want to talk about tonight, we're going to pray and we'll talk about is, is Jesus really our king in every part of our life? See, I have have this belief that actually probably none of us here are loyal to Jesus in 100% part of our life. And maybe that's even impossible this side of paradise. But, but that does not give us the right to rebel against our king, to be disloyal. So we need to talk about why it is we're disloyal and what we can do about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask now that we thank you for your word, having gone through your word, that you will bring it home to us, that you will, if I've said anything to dishonor you, that it will will be forgotten. And if I've said anything true of you, that it will really, really drill down into people's hearts, into their souls, into their minds, so that they come to know you better and to serve you well. And now, please be with us as we talk about how to apply this in our lives every day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, real quick, last 10 minutes before the guys get up and lead us in worship. The most famous commencement speech of all time, which is not hard because most commencement speeches stink, right? 
How many of you actually remember the speech from your graduation? I mean, like, remember the flow, the final argument, the jokes, right? Speaker of the Ohio House spoke at my graduation. I don't remember a single thing he said. I do remember he took an hour to say it, <laughs> right? And that's all I remember. But there have been actually the only really commencement speech that you should go out and read. You should go out and listen to. You can go to iTunes and pay like three bucks and you can download the speech. It's a speech by David Foster Wallace. It's called This is Water. Now, the title of the speech comes from this. He tells a joke. He opens it up. You know, most people commencement speeches, they tell lame jokes, right? Well, he says, okay, it's my job to tell you a lame joke, so here's my lame joke. There are two young fish, and they're swimming through the river one day. An older fish comes by and says, hey, boys, how's the water today? The two young fish swim on a little bit longer, and one young fish looks at the other young fish and goes, what's water? And the point of the joke is, if you're surrounded by something all the time, you don't really know it's there, Right? And, and, and so he says that he uses that to say that we have this problem. Here's our problem. The problem is this. We see everything in our life through our own eyes. Right? We don't see life through other people's eyes. We see it through our own eyes. Right? Now, I have long said that the only thing I want other than salvation for myself and my family and revival is a Terminator eye. Do you know the Terminator eye? Have you seen the Terminator, right? And Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's got the eye, and it looks at somebody, it has, brings up like a computer file on them and tells them their name and all that kind of stuff and, and the appropriate responses, all that kind of stuff. I want a Terminator eye. But I haven't got a Terminator eye. I see everything through my own eyes. And the problem with seeing everything through my own eyes, the problem with you seeing everything through your own eyes is this. You are always the center of your own attention. Correct? Everything is about you. You believe everything is about you because you're with yourself all the time. Make sense? Everything is filtered through your own eyes. Everything comes through your own experiences. Everything is about you. You see everything. It's about you. And so because of that, what do you do? You believe everything is about you. And you get really angry and frustrated that other people do not understand this great truth. Right? When you're wanting to get out of somewhere and there's heavy traffic and you just cannot get out, you want to see true sinfulness? Five minutes after a Reds game in the parking garage. Right? That will, that will absolutely convince you of pure human sinfulness. You can see people like screaming and red-faced and really angry that people are not letting them out because they're sitting there thinking, don't you know this is all about me? But we do the same thing because we see everything through our own eyes. Everything is about us. And the problem is that when you do that, you are your own king. You are your own priority. Jesus is somewhere down the list. You're number one, always. It's always about you. And so you end up worshiping whatever makes you feel good. What brings you pleasure? What brings you attention? What brings... That's what you do. Right? So you make 
false gods and false kings. Because after all, it's all about you. But David Foster Wallace was a pretty sharp guy. He's no longer with us, unfortunately. But here's what he said. This is just a, a two paragraphs from his speech, This is Water. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing that, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is to keep this truth up front in daily consciousness. In other words, worshiping something outside of yourself, you have to keep that in front and constantly remind that it's not about you and you have to worship something outside yourself or you will make it about you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. Is he right? He's right, is right? We end up worshiping false gods and having false kings because every, we make everything about us because that's our default setting. And it will kill you. It will absolutely destroy you. Some of you here are working through recovery and you've seen what happens when you make a substance God. Does it give or does it take? It takes. It takes. It takes until you are gone. It eats you alive. It eats you from the inside. But here's the thing. Other things will do that as well. Worship yourself. That will happen. It will eventually just destroy you. It will just destroy you. Any king, any God, except Jesus Christ, that you give yourself to, will destroy you. It will bring you down. It will kill you. Eventually. It just will. All kings, all gods except Jesus Christ take. Only one gives. Only one. Everything else will take your life. He is the only one willing to give His to save you. Because see, at the end of the day, and what we build everything on here at Revolution is this, that Jesus Christ 
lived in your place, died in your place, died in your place to pay the penalty for your sins so that you never have to pay them, lived a perfect life, overcame temptation to give that to you so that one day when you stand before the Father for judgment, as all of us will, that you will be judged. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you will be judged by His overcoming temptation, not yours giving into it. You will be, you will be judged by His faithfulness to the Holy Spirit, not your rebellion. And for that, you get an eternal, beautiful future. It's the only God, the only King that gives and gives and gives and gives. Everything else takes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your life. We thank you for your faithfulness, your love, that you lived a perfect life, not just to taunt us with it, but to give it to us, that you overcame temptation on our behalf as our substitute, that you died the death we deserve to die. We thank you for this. May we commit ourselves to be your servants. May we see you and you only as king. And may we give every area of our life to you. Every area of our life. The way we make and spend our money, the way we spend our time, the way we treat our family, friends, even especially our enemies, the way we live our lives, may they be totally and utterly ruled by you. May there not be a single inch where we say, no, we're going to keep this. May we give it all to you because only you have earned it. Only you truly love us. You are the only king that can take us away from our default settings of seeing everything as if everything is about us and show us that it's really all about you and that that's It's a beautiful, wonderful, life-giving thing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we're going to worship our...